the text for this morning's sermon. Uh, once again, if you want to turn back to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. And uh, this morning, since we looked at that text and I read it last week, uh, this morning I'm going to read Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, if you want to turn there as well. Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's pray. Father, as we come look at your word and understand the context of what we have before us in David slaying Goliath, Lord, I pray that you would help us be absolutely amazed at what you promised us. How David is a picture pointing towards Christ. Help us see it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we looked at the story of David and Goliath in our journey through 1 Samuel. And we looked at it, kind of zoomed up what's happening in this text. And what we saw is that David was the only one in Israel that seemed to care about God's glory. And recognizing God's presence, David goes and slays Goliath that his name would be praised, that God would be glorified. And so my challenge to you all was be jealous for God's renowned by recognizing His ever-present help so that everyone may know that know God and that He saves. And so the idea was we ought to live our lives in the same way. No matter your circumstance, God is present. Trust in Him face, in a sense, anything before you that people might see your life and say, I never knew God was like that. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to zoom way out and we're going to see where this falls, 1 Samuel 17, in the scope of God's promises to sinners And as we do this, 
there's a few things I want you to see. If you look at your notes, here's my charge to you today. Know for certain that as sure as the Abrahamic shepherd king of Judah cut off Goliath's head, so sure is King Christ's victory over Satan and sin for you. Now that might sound like a mouthful, but those words in italics mean something. Abrahamic, shepherd, king, Judah, Goliath. This story doesn't just show up out of nowhere. And today, I want to take you on this journey that I think is amazing. Let me help you understand what we're going to try to do. Have you ever walked in to a room where people are watching a movie? And it's kind of an intense movie. And as you walk in, you might want to greet people or you might want them to recognize you're there. But they're all glued in. They could really care less that you've walked through the door. And it's the middle of the movie. It's an important part, you can tell. And you're watching them as they're so intent. And you're watching the movie and they might respond with, oh, no way. And you're kind of going, what's the big deal? You know? And what you want to do is you want to disrupt this great movie and say, so what's going on? I missed the beginning. Help me understand. Well, I don't know if you guys are Lord of the Rings fans, but I've just kind of observed the Lord of the Rings casually. I think I've seen all the movies, but I've never really understood the characters or the storyline. And so if I'm watching with the Lord of the Rings buff, someone who knows what's going on, I'm constantly trying to figure out why this is amazing and why this is cool. (laughs) And... I I would drive you crazy trying to watch one of those movies. Well, in a sense, the story of David and Goliath, there is enough... That story, that account of history is so amazing. Even if you knew nothing about the Bible, you could enjoy it. You could understand something from it. But here's my challenge. What if... You knew everything leading up to it. What if you knew everything that comes after it? And my argument is, if you'll track with me today, and you'll take this journey, my goal is that you're worshiping at the end of this. From the very first chapters of Genesis to the very last chapters of the Bible, this book is unbelievable. Unbelievable. God's promises are unbelievable. And so, we're going to spend most of our time in Genesis, Numbers, and then we'll look at the story of David and Goliath quickly. And then we'll look at where it points. And uh, 
So if you have your Bibles, let's begin the journey in Genesis chapter 1 in verses 26 through 28. I'm going to try to give you time to get to these verses. And if you will track, your Bible will begin to become amazing to you as God weaves His promises together. And as they go along, they become more clear that yeah, there, there's no other way I can explain it than amazing. In Genesis 1.26, this is what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion. So here's the first key thing I want you to see. Right away, the first man is spoken of. His purpose is to have dominion. It's a kingly word. It's kingdom language. And look, he's supposed to have dominion over animals, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. The very first picture we see when man's created is you have a kingly figure that's a shepherd-like figure that rules over God's creation and who is fruitful. He's to multiply and fill the earth. And then turn to Genesis chapter 3. We get to this infamous story where Adam and Eve fall. We get the account where man sins. But I want to focus in on verses 14 through 21. I want to focus in on these curses that God sets on both the serpent and Adam and Eve in the land. In verse 14, we read this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because Satan had deceived Eve, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and eat, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So let's summarize this curse on the serpent. Here's what he says. You're going to eat dust. That's going to be your food. And you're going to be in a battle with the seed of the woman. The rest of life is going to play out between a seed of the woman and the seed of a serpent. And we're going to see them clash over and over again. And this is the curse that is given 
to Satan. Dust, eating dust. And he's going to clash with the seed of the woman. And not only that, the seed of the woman's heel is going to be injured, but there's going to be a fatal head wound to the serpent. There's going to be a battle. The snake's going to strike, but the heel is going to come down and be bruised as it crushes the serpent's head right at the beginning of our Bible. Next, in verse 17, or I'm sorry, in verse 16, to the woman he said, Surely I'll multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now here's what we have. There will now be pain in childbearing and the relationship that led to this childbearing will be wounded. Rather than a husband and a wife that get along so naturally and is such a joyous relationship, there's going to be conflict there and in the physical birthing out, reproduction, multiplying, there's going to be pain. So we have conflict between the seed of the woman and we have conflict between the man and the woman. The seed of the woman and the serpent and the man and the woman. And the, here's the third conflict. And He said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that should bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And the third curse is between man and the land. No longer is the land just going to produce fruitfulness. From the sweat of His brow is it going to happen. And because of man's sin, what happens? They get pushed out of this garden where they get to walk in the presence of God. And now they get to work this land. Now there is the relationships of mankind are broken. Childbearing is painful. And there's a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then as you know, if you look at, uh, look at verse 20. You know, there's, in these curses, there's hope. Because God told them that if they ate of this tree, they would surely die. But there was, in the fact there'd be pain in childbearing, there's gonna be childbearing. There's gonna be someone come from the woman that's gonna destroy the serpent. There's hope in here. Only one of these curses is ultimately devastating, and it's the curse on the serpent. That's the one where there's no hope. Eve gives birth to Cain. She says, by the help of the Lord, I've given birth to man. I think she thinks this is it. Here's the one. But then Cain 
kills Abel, and then she gives birth to Seth in hope that maybe from Seth will come this Savior. And then in, look at chapter 5 of Genesis. You know, we get to these genealogies and we, we think they don't mean much. And we have the generations of Adam here. And we're told who the father is, who their son is, how long they lived. And, and we get this theme, and death came, and death came, and death came. But look at verse 28 of Genesis 5. Right after, we're told that all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, the oldest man who ever lived. He had a son. Verse 28, here's what we read. When Lamech lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. But then we get this comment about his name. We don't get this in the others saying, out of the ground that the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so we get a picture. Maybe the land curse is going to be reversed in Noah. And so we see this genealogy that leads us to Noah. And then from Noah on, we get another genealogy in chapter 11 that goes from Noah to Abraham. And what we have in our Bibles is a connection all the way back to Genesis 3, all the way up to Abraham, and I think it's screaming forth the seed of the woman. The promise is still intact. It looks pretty devastating at Genesis chapter 11 when once again, even after Noah and his family leaves the ark, they're still sinful and they're still rebelling against the Lord. But then we get to chapter 12. Look at Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Remember that. And you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then if you look at verse 7 of chapter 12, he adds this in there. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I'll give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so, in Abraham, it seems like the answers to the curse are on the table. 
Jim Hamilton writes this, might the blessings of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3 be a direct answer to the curses in Genesis 3, 14-19? God promises land, seed, and blessing to Abraham. The nations will be blessed through the seed of the woman from Abraham. The seed of Abraham who crushes the serpent's head. The birth of this seed means that the conflict between the man and the wife is not final. Nor will the difficulty in childbearing be fatal. God promises land to Abraham and his seed and land hints to a return to the Garden of Eden. So could it be that Abraham gets these blessings, the one that's going to reverse the curse, the one who's going to be the seed who will crush the serpent's head. And then look at Genesis 17. As more promises are given to Abraham. He says, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations. And what does it say? And kings shall come from you. There's going to be kings that rise from the promise to Abraham. We already saw a king right away in the garden. We saw a kingdom. And Abraham is promised that there will be kings. And then look at verse 16, Genesis 17-16. I will bless her. And moreover, I'll give you a son by her. I'll bless her. She shall become nations and kings of people shall come from her. And as you know, Abraham... How's his relationship with his wife? Well, you can recognize the curse as they battle and struggle and Hagar, his maid, her maidservant, gives Abraham a child. We see the struggle, but God says, in you, I'm going to overcome it. Yes, you're barren, but I'm going to open your womb. And you're going to have a child. And look at Genesis 21.12. After Sarah had said that she wants Abraham to put Ishmael and Hagar away from them, to push them away, in verse 12 of Genesis 21, God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham, from you are going to be many nations. From you, the promise is going to go. And by the way, it's going to be 
through Isaac, through the barren woman, Sarah, whom I supernaturally opened her womb and overcame difficult relationship. There is hope, but it's through Isaac. And as you know, Isaac and Rebecca get pregnant with twins. But what does God say? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The promise will go through Jacob. And when God is renaming Jacob in Genesis 35, go ahead and turn there. Genesis 35, starting in verse 11. And God tells Jacob that his name is going to be Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Lock, solid, chain, linked back to Abraham, linked back to Noah, linked back to Adam. It's going to run through Jacob. And as you know, Jacob has 12 sons, the sons of the tribes of Israel. And when Joseph, their second to youngest son, becomes ruler in Egypt and he saves Israel from the famine in the land. And he's calling his family up to live. It's interesting what he says to his family. Genesis 46.33 Genesis 46.33 Here's what he says to his family. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now. Both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so Israel is still this family that shepherds animals. And he says the Egyptians find shepherds as an abom abomination. So he'll, they'll give you this land. And then we know the promises, the blessings that... Uh, Jacob gives to his sons, and especially to Judah. This is what Scott read. So, before Jacob died, here's what he says to Judah. And this is so important. Genesis 49, 8-10. I want you to really think, because here's where the links 
in my mind, are absolutely amazing. Here's what Jacob prophesies over Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah, a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares to rouse him. So you get this picture of Judah, this lion that is resting, ready to pounce in power. Who's going to mess with a lioness ready to attack? Judah, this is what you'll be like. And then look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Judah, you have a scepter. From you will come a ruler, a king. And we have God's promise running through Israel and through Judah. And as you know, Moses is raised up after Israel has lived in the land of Egypt for 400 years and they are now slaves. God raises up Moses. You don't need to turn here. But in 1 Samuel 12, 8, we get a summary of what God did through Moses. When Jacob went into Egypt, it says, and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And in Psalm 77.20, you don't need to turn here either, we read this about Moses. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Moses is like the shepherd that takes God's sheep and leads them to a safe land. And then in Numbers 27, go ahead and turn to Numbers because we're going to be here for a while now. Numbers 27. We see Moses speak to the Lord. Moses 27, verse 15. Here's what, it, here's what we find. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out and before them and come in before them. So Moses is getting old and he's praying for one to come after him. Who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And so as Moses is this type of shepherd for Israel, he's praying, Lord, send another shepherd that will take My people out to eat, bring them back, protect them, and guide them. And you see, God 
working through Moses to protect the seed, which is Israel. And then turn to Numbers 24. Here's where my jaw really begins to drop. Numbers 24, starting in verse 5. Now this might be a familiar story to you. This is where Balak, who is the king of Moab, begins to get nervous. He saw what Israel has done to the Ammonites. And Balak starts to get nervous and he calls for a prophet, the son of Beor from Pethor, Balaam. He calls for Balaam to curse Israel so he can defeat Israel. He wants the prophet to call a curse down on God, on Israel, so he can defeat Israel. Do you remember the promise to Abraham? I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Do you think you see the seed of the woman rising up in Moab? Seeking to fight against Israel? Well, Balaam, after the story with the donkey where the angel of the Lord is standing in front of him and Balaam's beating his donkey. Well, after this, the Lord gives him three oracles and then a final oracle. And I want to look at the third one and the final one. They're all amazing. But here's what God prophesies through Balaam. Numbers 24, starting in verse 5. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. Now remember, he's supposed to be speaking a curse on Israel, but he told Balak, he says, whatever God tells me, I'm going to say. So if God blesses Israel, I have to bless Israel. And so here's what he says. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river. So we have gardens and we have a river. We got this almost like an Eden-like state being spoken of. Water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be many waters. He's multiplying fruitfully in this garden. And then what does it say? His seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag. And his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries. He shall break the bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. So he's this king that's going to be in a fruitful garden, that's going to rise up and destroy his enemies. And now look at verse 9. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? So now, we're connecting the king of Judah to one who's going to bring about an Eden-like state. And finally, look at how this ends. 
Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. Who's, who's that promise to? Abraham. So here's what God does through Balaam. He's weaving together all these things for us. The blessing to Abraham is the blessing to Judah. The blessing to... They're weaved together in one into the one seed looking forward to the one garden. And then look at verse 17 of Numbers 24. We get this final oracle. Numbers 24-17, here's what he says. I see him now, or I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it shall crush the forehead of Moab. This is where we worship. Unbelievable how God draws these promises. There's going to be a king that crushes the head of Moab and breaks down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be disposed. Sarah also, his enemies shall be disposed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors' cities. There's a king. I cannot curse these people. God blesses these people. God is doing something. And then Judah. Remember, he sleeps with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and she gives birth to a son, Perez, Ruth 4.18. Here's this genealogy. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nahash. Nahash fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth and fathers Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So now, turn to 1 Samuel 17. And I just want to point out, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. I just want to point out to you now where the story of David and Goliath falls. Look at verse 12. So after we get this scary picture of Goliath, and all Israel and Saul are fearful, no one knows what to do, then all of a sudden, breaking forth on the page, look at verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. You see, if you know your Bible, right now you're going, no way. No way. You see, Saul, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. There was no promise that a king was going to save Israel from Benjamin from the tribe of Benjamin. But now, the son of Jesse comes on the scene, which is the grandson of Judah. 
which is promised there's going to be a king. Remember, there's been no king in Israel up until now. There's been no king with all these promises of a king. David comes on the scene. Look at verse 14. David was the youngest. Three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep. Oh, so now the son of Judah, who is a shepherd, comes on the scene. And David rose, verse 20, early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took provisions and went just as Jesse commanded him. So this David character, who's already been anointed king by Samuel, even though no one else knows of it, they just know Saul is king, he takes proper provision for the sheep. And his older brother comes and says, with whom have you left the sheep? You have evil in your heart, David. And then David finds out what will be done for the one who will slay Goliath. That he'll be given a bride. That he'll be made rich. His family will be made rich. And what does he do? We don't have time to go look at it, but you know the story. What does it say? David rejects the armor and he has a little pouch. But the text doesn't just say he has a pouch. He has a shepherd's pouch. And he goes and he faces an enemy that is calling out curses upon Israel. Remember the promise to Abraham? He's cursing Israel by his gods. And David understands prophecy. And David takes that stone and he hits that seed of the serpent right in the forehead and it says he fell on his face. He fell on his face. Dust in his face. And what does he do? He pulls out the sword and he cuts off the serpent's head. Right there. Cuts off Goliath's head. And it's just kind of weird because after this, David's running around with his head. It says he still had his head in his hand. What's the deal with carrying the head around? Well, the head, we're supposed to see something here. We're supposed to see how God saves. How He destroys the enemy. And then how does this passage end? Joab says, who, who, whose son is this? Whose son, whose son did this? And Saul says, I don't know. Whose son? You know, bring him to me. He brings him to him. Whose son are you? Look at the last verse of chapter 17. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? David answered him, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's the son of Judah. But we, we have this new information. He's from Bethlehem. More information 
on the table. You know that Micah goes on to prophesy that the Messiah, Micah 5.2, will come out of Bethlehem. He'll be born in Bethlehem. And we ran out of time way sooner than I had planned. But do you see what God has been doing? Up until this point, when this takes center stage, and then in 2 Samuel 7, here's the promise David's given. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come out of your body. I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name. I will establish His throne forever. I'll be a father to Him and He shall be to Me a son. And then Psalm 72 A lot of people believe this is David's last prayer for Solomon because the last verse of this says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, have ended. David's prayer, I'll just give you a few verses in it. Give the king your justice, O God, your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. In his days... May the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May He have dominion from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Now get this. May the desert tribes bow down before Him and His enemies lick the dust. So David says, I'm praying for another king. His kingdom will last forever. His enemies will lick the dust. And we don't have time to go show you how all this obviously points to our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, the One who Zechariah said was the King raised up from the house of David. Zechariah promised that this is the One who He swore to an oath to His father Abraham. Our Bible is unstinking believable. Absolutely amazing. And Christ is King. Here's what you know. If that giant fell down and his head was chopped off, so sure is has Christ defeated Satan and defeated sin and reversed the curse. So sure has God promised a land for His people that will be like the Garden of Eden. So sure has He purchased a seed for His people. A true family with good, perfect relations. So sure has He promised blessing and not a curse. Eternal life rather than eternal death. And here's what I want to leave you with. This question. You know, they ask this question about Jesus. I just can't help but show you this. John 19.6 The chief priests and officers said to Him, they cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate said, Take Him yourselves and crucify Him. I don't find any guilt in Him. The Jews answered Him, We have a law, and according to that law, He ought to die because He's made Himself the Son of God. 
When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Whose son are you? This is what the whole New Testament screams. And it points us to Christ. But my question to you is, whose son are you? Whose daughter are you? Are you from the seed of the woman? Are you from the seed of the serpent? Blessing comes through the seed of the woman. Here's how it comes to us in the New Testament. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, it is those who are of faith that are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you want to be a child of Abraham, a child of the promise, whether you're Gentile or Jew, it's by faith in Christ. Because a few verses later, here's what we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Amazing Gospel. And you can be a part of God's family if you trust by faith in the one King that was promised from the very beginning to destroy sin and to destroy Satan. Father, I pray that faith would be strengthened by the grandeur of Your Word. Oh, how I fail to show all how these things weave together so beautifully. Oh, how inexhaustible is Your Word. Lord, I pray that our hope would be in Christ the King, that our focus would be on the Kingdom to come. Lord, we're awaiting the day when You will bring about all these things to full fulfillment. They have their yes and amen in Christ. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.